Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, today, for our 21st episode, we're going to be wrapping up our discussion of Arcadia Martin's A Memory Called Empire, the brand new sci-fi series Tix Kalan from Tor Books. I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined again by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. Drew, what's up, dude? How's it going? And, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, let's, I mean, I just kind of want to dive right into it because I'm a lot more, uh, I guess, stoked than I was, uh, last week, uh, <laughs> at this time. This book, we, like, the, like, it really picked up in pace, didn't it, for this whole second half? It did. Yeah. Um, we got, I, I forget where exactly we left off. It was at the end of chapter 10, I want to say. Yeah, ch- chapter 10. Did we do the interlude? Did we cover we the interlude? We did not yet? do the interlude. Okay, so that, that's a perfect jumping off point right there. Um, so, like, the interlude we got from I'm Not About's point of view, it gave us, like, a whole lot to digest as we start kind of running through this whole second half. Because not only mm-hmm. do we get to see supposedly how Mahit's Imago was, like, damaged to begin with, but we get some pretty, like, uh, interesting motive for that kind of move in the first place. Um, I hadn't considered, like, like I'm Not About's worry or jealousy whatever you want to call it that Tixkalon is seducing too much of LaSalle station and it's it was another neat sort of cultural ramification of this technology that I hadn't immediately considered but totally totally yeah. makes sense when it's explained mm-hmm. yeah what about you dude yeah I loved this book I, <laughs> I man this is one of the best written things I've read in a long time it's yeah, it was and for, me, and for something new like like, it's always nice when I can stumble over a real gem like this that I've never read before. I mean, it's brand new. Just came out, like, two months ago. Um, yeah. And I thought it was kind of appropriate. You know, like, this is our, our 21st episode. We can... Our podcast can legally drink now. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, I keep forgetting and, that. <laughs> and we have a very adult, like, a very involved, grown-up kind of book to talk about for our 21st episode. Yeah, this was this was definitely a, a bit of a more engaging, challenging read. Um, although for the second half, I mean, like I said, that that the pace really, really picked up. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was, I mean, I went through that second half. I think okay. So to to give some context, that first half, since we had a whole lot of you know just scheduling issues, we kept putting off episodes. We were eating through our buffer of pre-recorded mm-hmm. episodes for uh, a few solid weeks there. And uh, this was the this was the book that we were on, so that, that I technically had the most time to get through listening at work. Mm-hmm. Um, cause again, like I said, I've been doing the audiobook for this one and honestly, it, I, I still found myself, I think we were given like three or four weeks to read, uh, the uh, first uh, half of this book, something like that. We, it, it was actually, we had like three weeks to read the second half of Kane's law. Was and it Kane's we, law? And then we only had one week for the first half of a memory. Oh, but we had, we had already, uh decided what the next book was going to be yeah, yeah so i mean i had started it from the time I, I originally started listening to the first half the first part of this book oh. and i got to the halfway point for me i think was like three weeks it took me a while oh, i was just <laughs> and i did i did have a, a bit to complain about last episode I, th- I felt some parts were boring but that was you know a personal taste thing and i did admit at the time i still say it could have just been beyond me the second <laughs> half of this book i went through in one single day at work yeah one day it was eight hours of listening i had an 11 hour day of welding it was done in that day i it was no issue it, the the pacing picked up so much and there was so much more happening that i mean i got all of everything that i wanted 
in the first half of this book, I got in the second half of this book. It yeah. was definitely a hell of a ride. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's really cool Open how my beer you know, here. You know, for me, like I, I enjoyed the first half of the book quite a lot too. Yeah, you had said that, um, yeah. But one of the things that stood out to me in the first half, it was like the scene that hooked me where I was like, All right, I'm in and it was um when uh, Mahit sees Yaskander's dead body and the Imago, like, you know, assimilation breaks down. And that was just such a psychologically tense scene. And then in the second half of this book, we got another one, like, right off the bat with the surgery and the new assimilation uh, yes. of both Yaskander's. And, and like, I, and like these descriptions of, like, she could feel her cervical vertebrae, like, open to the air as, like, the anesthetic wasn't working anymore or wasn't working fully. And, and this, like, body horror kind of emotion pour, pouring through her while she's undergoing this identity crisis. And, like, Yiskander is remembering dying and remembering not, not being able to breathe and trying to, like take over her autonomic nervous system and, oh, God, and that like was... oh that, that chapter was so intense but it was, it was so good it was it was once again it like it reaffirmed my enjoyment and my in investment into this story and this character specifically absolutely and i think so if we're talking about the same chapter here it's i think it was chapter 16 yes it, that was that explosive leap forward in fact i remember texting you over facebook drew when i got to that scene um, like it was on that first day and I, and I think it was immediately after, yeah, it was immediately after we recorded the last episode. I was like, Drew, just fucking wait. It really picks yeah. up. Chapter 16 was incredible. Um, and my thoughts about that chapter in particular, I have written down here, uh, like I had said, explosively forward when Mahit woke up in all, for all intents and purposes as Yaskander, you I know, mean, that was surreal. That was terrifying. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you know, immediately following, we get this flashback from Yaskander, um, from, you know, when he was chosen to be the LaSalle ambassador, he asks, why now? And he's told, because we may have to ask Tixkalan to preserve us from something worse than Tixkalan. Yeah. And the entire conversation that followed was just chilling. You know, there's, there's definitely something larger going on. There's this sort of evil thread waiting in the proverbial wings. And I think that just nailed that just hit home so hard that's why i love that chapter so much we got so much to digest in such a short amount of time there it was great yeah like she did a good job of kind of ramping up the um uh no doubt the tension in this book but not only that like like she had laid the groundwork so well with these little bits and pieces um you know traced along through the first half of the book that came to a very satisfying conclusion but but not only the conclusion, but the moments of revelation mm. during the last, like, or the middle third of the book, essentially, where you start putting the puzzle pieces together and being like, oh, wow, okay. And, and one of the things that I loved the most was this alien presence, this yes. threat on the border. That very first... Um, I think it was an like, inter- transmission. Uh, epigraph, right? Epi- yeah, it was, yeah. An, it was an epigraph, like, I, I don't know, maybe like chapter <laughs> eight or nine. Yeah. Um and and that transmission of the description, you know, from the the LaSalle pilot and like it was so creepy. I yeah. loved that. And then I I felt 
uh, vindicated in the way that alien threat built into a key point at the climactic moment, you know, and uh, yeah. and so I'm I'm really looking forward to the sequel of this because you know obviously those aliens are going to be a, a bigger deal moving forward. Like we we must be oh, getting yeah. some kind of uh, you know interplanetary warfare between oh, be the, so cool. the Texcalanli Empire and these nameless aliens. So and per- yeah, and perhaps some uh, you know some future uses for this kind of imago technology and some other uh, methods to which it could be put to use. You know, mm-hmm. in the war against the aliens or whatever you know, faceless threat that we're facing at the moment. I do like the fact that we do have this instilled in us. I mean, the book had its own climax. It had its own story, but there are still these seeds laid out for, you know, uh, Martin going forward that, you know, I really appreciated. Um, But uh, yeah, is there anything else like style wise you want to discuss about her before we move into characters? Yes. (laughs) I do have a lot to say um, about the, uh, the audiobook narrator as well. Uh, Amy Landon, she was awesome. She was awesome um, for this, mm. like for this audiobook in particular. She's got this kind of natural, like organic feeling delivery that I feel like makes uh, Three Seagrass and Six Direction, the Emperor in particular, like, oh. really shine. Um, hmm. For anybody who who has the the chance to listen to this on audiobook, chapter nineteen was a case study in vocal performance. Uh, it was the scene where uh, Mahit and Three Seagrass and Five uh, Five Agate. Yeah, when yeah, they're five, leaving. Yeah, they're they're trying to talk their way past twenty of the sunlit. Yeah, or whatever. Uh, Mahit and Three Seagrass are just they're they're continuing to riff off of each other. I love, by the way, the fact that how like Martin makes those two continue to get better and better at guessing what the other one's up to and just playing along. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt it was made perfect by Landon's uh, sort of like tremulous delivery in that scene. Like she genuinely wow. made those characters sound like they were on the knife edge of hysteria. Yeah. Uh, like everything about the, the audiobook was fucking perfect. It was, it was awesome. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, have to yeah check that good out. things to and... say about her. And that ties you know, into what I wanted to talk about style-wise, and that is going back to the, the poetry. The way, mm. um, the way poetry and narrative is, is such an inextricably linked element to the Tixkalanli culture and, and how <laughs> yeah, everything, everything needs to make sense in a literary way for these people. And... Uh, and I, I thought it was really funny how there was one point where um, uh, I think it's it's when um, six helicopter the uh, the the douchebag yeah the douchebag um, he he comes in to take three seagrasses and and twelve azaleas cloud hooks and he says like do you realize what you've done like this posting political commentary on the you know on the nets could be construed as treason <laughs> and three seagrass says if She's like, oh, I composed a poem about my pertinent feelings in the current, you know, political climate. And if that's treason, then I suggest you take that up with 2,000 years of Texcalanli canon. <laughs> because there's going to be a lot more traitors there. And, but like, the, the word choice there, canon. It wasn't history, it was canon. Because everything in this empire is built around uh, narrative. Yeah. And there are little little things strewn throughout this book where she she just has specific word choices like that that help not only uh 
further the storyline, but uh, enrich the world that she's built and help establish this culture and and get help the reader understand the culture. And and it's done so naturally, you know, like it doesn't it doesn't feel awkward or, or stick out like a sore thumb or anything. It just flows really smoothly. And then bringing, of course, you know, the poetry into it. And this is why I'd be interested to at least listen to some of the uh, audiobook yeah. to see how they read the poems. Yeah, you know, I had considered for just, just very briefly, I threw it out the window right away, considered saving that exact point in the audiobook that I had just previously talked about, Amy Landon's mm-hmm. delivery in Chapter 19, and just playing, like, the 12 seconds of that that I found, the one that I kept rewinding again and again because it was awesome. But then I remember the part when they say, you know, no part of this audiobook may be, re- you know, pro- oh. you know producing. You know, I was like, oh, okay, that, you know, it, maybe it's not worth it. But you yeah. definitely should check it out. Uh, anybody who's got an Audible membership, you know, use one of your credits for that. I mean, it's... It, yeah, she, she uh, Amy Landon adds this whole other dimension to the audiobook when she gets to to read out this this political verse. I mean, she she a political goddamn poetic verse. Uh, it's it's awesome, you know. And that 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 line that we get repeated again. The city rises, marching a thousand star points strong. Released, we shall speak visions. Uneclipsed, I am a spear in the hands of the sun. Re- released, I am. I'm a spear in the hands. So, of the I'm quoting something else. I'm quoting something else here. It's, she specifically said "uneclipsed" in a different part. What? Yeah, uneclipsed. That was uh, the part I just wrote down. Uh, I just listened to the to it and it wrote it down as it was as she was saying it. It, it has a few different manners in which it's. I don't said. remember that. Like, oh, the, when, like was this when Six Directions? No, nope. when Six Directions said it, he said "released." Because that's the original line from the poem they wrote was re- released. When Six Direction said it, he said, released, I am in a spear in the hands of the sun, and I have it written down here. But the quote that I just wrote down as I had it, it was some. It was earlier. I think it was in, oh, uh, uh, I think it was the epigraph to chapter 19. Oh, shit, I can't play it right now, though. But uh, it has that excerpt in it. Maybe it was 20. Huh. It's in the book somewhere. I'll, you, I have it on the e-reader. By the way, I forgot to mention this at the top of the episode. I bought it on e-reader because it was just the pace was picking up so much. I was like, yes, I want to get it again. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see if I can read it, the physical. So now that I have it on the e-reader, I can absolutely look it up. I could do that search in Word, and I can tell you where she says, uh, where the, at one point they say, uneclipsed, I am a spear in the hands of the sun. Yeah, you don't have to do it right now, like after the episode. Oh, yeah, no, I'm, well, yeah. Because I don't we'll remember that at maybe all. Maybe like in the, you know... The, uh, description on the YouTube video or something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, but like that, I mean, that line that released, I'm a spear in the hands yeah, of the when, sun. Yeah, when said by, oh, was in context, I mean, it's powerful. so f***ing powerful, absolutely. Yeah, that yeah. was a, an absolute highlight of the book for me, was, was this I, yeah, growing I'm... realization, you're like, wait a second, he's gonna commit suicide. Yeah. And then you're <laughs> like, and then you start recontextualizing suicide in the Tixkalanli Empire, and it, and it was it was really done well because it was just before that that like a couple chapters earlier, maybe not even the previous chapter, um, they uh, the three of them, nineteen ads and three seagrass and Mahit took the blood oath, and it reminds you it's like well, this is you know the the linguistics the the etymological roots of these names in the Tixkalanli Empire is like. This is Central American, like Native American, Aztec kind of, um, you know. I thought it was like Zion-teen. Cultural roots, and 
And those cultures, like the Aztecs and the Mayans, are notorious for blood sacrifices. Oh, yeah, they and, definitely uh, are. <laughs> and so when, when I don't you, know why I'm finding that so funny. Go ahead, sorry. You start realizing in that pivotal moment when Sixth Direction is broadcast to the entire empire, the imperial override, yep. and you're like, wait a second, and you're seeing the characters themselves realizing and having these reactions to what's going on, and you as a reader, because you don't know as much as those characters do, it you're, you're like a half a step behind, and as you're putting it together, it's like, wait a second, he's going to commit suicide. Yeah. Wait a second, this has this like Aztec symbolism going on. This is like, this is not only a suicide, but a ritual sacrifice. Yeah. A ritual self-sacrifice. Yeah, and it's shout out to Six Direction, by the way. I mean, what a way to go. I mean, he didn't have a single fuck to give, did he? Yeah. I mean, yeah. he just opened his femoral arteries, and then he slashed open the insides and then the outside of his arms, and then he just bleeds out in a sacrificial ceremony atop, what was it, like a temple? Um, yeah, the Sun Temple on the, yeah, like, the North Palace Tower. International, or really interplanetary, like, live feed. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get much more fucking metal than that. Like, <laughs> wow, man. Uh, that was such a hard-hitting, like... And again, as you mentioned, it, it, it hit so much harder because you you got the clues as it was about to happen. Like when you, when you get the what he's talking about, the context that that he says, I think it was like renewal or regrowth was like the context of his conversation. Yeah, renewal. There. Mm -hmm. Renewal, and you were like, uh, ho uh hold on, wait a second, uh oh. And then of course you get the description of nineteen ads. So you know, you can see her face as she's starting to realize what's going on. She's standing right beside him, and then has to like school herself back into stillness because <laughs> yeah. she can't ruin his moment for him uh it was it, it oh. definitely was poignant it, it was uh yeah it was a cool scene to read for sure and then and then the delivery of that line that oh. closing line from the poem was just such a good <sighs> released i am a spear in the hands of the sun it's such a yeah. cool fucking chilling line i love it mm. god damn um, but it just, again, about about uh, Martine's like her actual power as a wordsmith, you know, the 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 prose that she uses. I definitely had a much greater appreciation for it the second time around, like without a doubt. Um, and I uh, I said, she okay. So her narrative voice is really cool. She doesn't have necessarily the same like impact as the other authors. Her words aren't necessarily blunt. They don't seem to like strike. But what she lacks for in in that kind of like. I don't know, force, if you want to call it, she just makes up for with aesthetic delivery. Like, like the attention of her prose in particular, it seems, I found like it kind of, I don't know, it seems to like flutter around here and there. And then she finds a spot, and then she dances around it before she just hurries on, you know. It's oddly compelling, you know. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like a, and I wrote down, it's like a vine that has flowers sprouting out of it here and there. And maybe it was this good from the beginning, yeah. and I just hadn't caught on until now. Like I said in the first, <laughs> you know, half of uh, the first, you know, the previous episode, maybe I just didn't appreciate it at that point. But when I started realizing it and I started looking for it, I mean, I definitely uh, found it way more palatable, way more enjoyable um, throughout the entire second half. Yeah. So, like, her prose definitely is um, airy and artistic. Yeah. It it's flowery. In in uh, and like and I hate to call it flowery because flowery in the context it, it kind of has like a can, connotation can have like that, a bad yeah yeah uh, in this way but, I mean but as this a, is not as a compliment in this case specifically yeah yeah it's not bad it's like it, this is a a, a point of um, 
Wow, in her it's favor. Totally blanked. Yeah, yeah, it's a point in her favor. But but so what she does with it is because it's this kind of ethereal, flowing prose, she has these moments where she'll anchor it. Yes. With, with an important, forceful, to use your term there, like, like a you know, a heavy hitting moment or line. And I think mm -hmm. in a lot of ways she does that with the poems. She uses the poems themselves yes. as like a touchstone. And it's, it's also really interesting to uh, look back at when she chooses to actually write out the poems and when she just has the narrative say like, oh, they were exchanging poems or we read this encrypted poem, you know? Like, it's, like, she doesn't have the, um, you know, the initial uh, poem in those encryptions. She has just them translate it into, you know, the pertinent information. Because in, in those situations, the poems aren't really, like, that would be overindulgent, flowery writing. But in certain situations, the poems have narrative weight. And she uses them, you know, in, in those situations to anchor this, uh, like, beautiful bouquet of words around it <laughs> a bouquet and of words i like even that. though even though the poem itself is obviously poetic and and you know artistic and like that because she built poetry into the world and made it this cultural um uh, uh, capstone uh, what's the word i'm looking yeah, for well yeah. cultural foundation sure um it, it's or cornerstone is a better word. Um, yeah, I think that's the it, word I was trying to say. <laughs> it serves a point uh, in the text of instead of being indulgent where some people might say like, oh, Tolkien is indulgent with the songs that the elves sing in Lord of the Rings or, or Rothfuss is indulgent with, with the songs that, you know, Kvothe performs in, in the Kingkiller Chronicle. It doesn't come across like that because it has narrative impact. And it's really cool to me how she uses these moments of narrative impact to uh, solidify her prose. Like, it, it, it's this inverted, fun thing that she does. And it's a mark of, I think, a very, very talented writer. Not many it's authors kind of, I've read could pull this off. It's kind of like writing meta, in a way. Not too meta, but it's yeah. like, it, it's, it's, there's more to be had when you step back and look at it as a bigger whole. Rather than just being in the moment, which I think I fall, uh, you know, pray to a lot of the time, or it's just a, it's a fault that I have. I just, I, a lot of the times I'm in, I'm too much in the moment and I don't stop to appreciate everything that's going on around mm -hmm. this scene and the, and the manner in which it's, it's delivered. Um, yeah. So, so, I mean, props to Arcady Martin, uh, or, uh, Anna Linden Weller as she is, uh, as, as her also real name known. is. Yeah. Um, you know, she did a good job, definitely. And I, you know, I wasn't like, after the first book I was, or the first half, I should say, I wasn't entirely certain if I wanted to continue with the rest of the books of these series when it does come, in this series, when it does come out. But I, like, absolutely do now. Like, without yeah. a doubt. Like, the, ugh, it was, it was great. It was awesome. Um, should we discuss, start, start discussing some individual characters and how we thought they went? Sure. Yeah, so we, we would have to start with Mahit, right? Of course, our, our main character. Yeah, I, I mean, she she was, I thought, a little less compelling in the first half. Excuse Agreed. me. Uh, but with the integration of the new Imago and, and both Yiskanders, and now she has this 
ongoing, I wouldn't call it an identity crisis, but an a identity um, conversation. Uh, she became a much more compelling character yeah, to me. I, I, I thought she identity was... Identity negotiation, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, negotiation, yeah, it's yeah. even better. Um, and and it's it's really cool how, how Martine did that, where, you know, we had this expectation of what an Imago does built up in the first, like, two chapters, and then and then Yiskander's torn from her, and she goes around telling people about how it works, right? And and so we have an expectation built up for how it will work, and then when she gets the new one and has, like, the full Yiskander integrated into herself, it is much different from what we were given to expect, where he's, like... Uh, subconsciously trying to take over her body. Yeah, he's challenging it a, a little bit. Um, yeah. He wasn't and, expecting to wake up again in someone else's body. He didn't mm-hmm. really have much say in the matter, so it kind of, I don't know, it's a little tough. Yeah, it, it, it was it was fun because it, it made Mahit's, uh, uh, I should say it's fun as like a reader's experience. It wasn't <laughs> fun for Mahit. Um, it's because you saw my little head flick there? Like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go uh, ahead. Because it it really raised the stakes, where it it gave her a more immediate, heavier internal conflict to deal with, just as all of these external events are coming mm. to a head, as multiple coups are going down and there are riots in the streets and all that, and she's there, not even fully in control of her own body. Yeah, yeah, definitely. She felt like she was definitely a more solid personality in the latter half of this book, and I don't know if it was because maybe the, it was because the pacing picked up so much and it forced her to start making a lot more, like, decisions and acting on mm-hmm. impulse, you know, more frantically, but as a character, she felt like she had more room. Like, she had... She started to breathe more, and I don't know... I, I didn't realize until now, or at least until the second half of the book, I should say, how much she kind of felt suffocated to me as a character in the first half because she's just constantly drowning in politics and assassination attempts. Um, sorry, that beer is coming right back out of me. Uh, she felt funnier <laughs> in the second half, too. Like, she started to display these shining moments of this kind of bitter, self-aware sort of humor. Uh, I want to yeah. draw to, to the to the attention right now. There's one moment after she overpowers uh, the assassin, Eleven Conifer. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Three Seagrass starts, you know, like, uh, trying to console her. And she's like, Mahit, you know, most people don't. And then Mahit cuts her off with what get ambushed by strangers with terrifying weapons in their own apartments while evading their only political ally in order to have secret meetings on a foreign planet no yeah. i assume that doesn't happen to tixkalon lead slim it was it was great and again i i have said it before and i'll say it again amy landon nailed that fucking line that was probably mm. the the greatest line that she had in this entire audiobook and i i must have rewound it and listened to it like three or four times it was perfect she had she had this little crack at the end of it that was just uh it humanized Mahit so much yeah and and there yeah. was another line like that at at the end of the book between three seagrass and Mahit, where three seagrass says you know like, being stuck in an underground bunker during a you know an attempted oh, I, coup and riots yeah. isn't something that was on my itinerary for what i should expect as the liaison <laughs> to the cultural ambassador and like, yeah 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 I love those 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 moments. I mean, they they stop and realize how fucked up their situation is. Yeah. Ah, it's and, great. And I will say, speaking of fucked up, um, 
and obviously we will be censoring this episode. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's, uh, I actually really enjoyed the way Martine used profanity in this book. It was very staring, but but because I, of that, yes. it it really pops. Uh, it, it shows you just what kind of stress the characters are under when they drop an f bomb. Yeah, uh, three seagrass has so many shiny mm-hmm. moments of that, and, and I did, we'll get to there very very soon once we're done our discussion with Mahit. Uh, but um, how did you feel like? Um, how did you feel about where she ended up? as a character at the very end, you know, how uh, specifically about her final scene is, I guess what, how I want like what I want to discuss. Um, she, uh, you know, she's heading so, back to LaSalle station. It was quiet. It was personal. Um, she got a, it kind of felt narratively like a chance to exhale, but as the station comes into view, she thinks of it as a certain kind of free, but at the same time, not in the end, quite home. Yeah. Um, my initial reaction was, disappointment that she wanted to leave Texcalon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted her to stay, but I was at least uh, happy that 19 ads told her, yeah, I'll let you go, but I'm going to need an ambassador from LaSalle Station, and when I need her, I will call for you. Yeah. Um, but because of that, I I was you know, more okay with it, and I'm, I'm also looking forward to what I presume in the second book is going to be much more um, focused on uh, the counselors and the intrigues going on with them, with Amnardbot and uh, um, oh, uh, yeah. Onchu and uh, Tarjats, yeah. like uh, their whole like three-way like undercutting each other and undercutting Mahit and helping Mahit at the same time and all that. So like I think that's you know that's something to look forward to. This is fertile seeing soil. More of Lacelle Station in the next book. Narrative seeds, yes. Um, but but I did. I did really appreciate that final line, as you said, the, you know, that it's not quite like home. Uh, yeah. Because that tells me that this is still the Mahit we got to know over the course of the book. That it's, she, she wasn't irrevocably changed by the events at the end, and it's not like she's afraid of Tixkalon, that she wants to just get out. It's like, she just, she needs to kind of recalibrate. She needs to to find her center again, and I think she'll find that on LaSalle Station and then return to Texcalon eventually. Because that's where she belongs. You see, you say that you appreciated that because it, it, it signified to you that we still ended up with the same heat that we started with, but for no, me... No, not that we started with. Not no? that we started with, but Sorry. the same Mahit that grew over the course of the book. Okay, okay, okay. Because I was going to say, that kind of signifies a little to me how she changed a little bit, because she was... She yes. definitely didn't feel quite home throughout the, the first half of this book. But now I see what you were saying. Okay. Yeah, because at the start of the book, she feels like such a fish out of water. Oh, yeah, and she, and she thinks of LaSalle as home. So many and she, times. There's, there's the book, one yeah. uh, important signifying moment, in fact, early on, where she considers the uh, the view of you know the constellations from the on the ceiling above the bed. And she talks about how it, it annoys her that it's, the view from Tixcalon, not from LaSalle Station. But then at the end of the book, when she's back in bed, finally back in her ambassadorial impart- apartments, and and she's just lying in bed recovering and looking up at it, and she's comforted by that view from of the stars from Tixcalon, not from yeah. LaSalle Station. You know, so... Uh, yeah. like it's she definitely changed and that's important for a character you know if if there was no 
if she if she were a static character, this wouldn't have been a good book. Like like the right, writing yeah, may still have been very nice, but it wouldn't have been a good story. Like the characters need to change in some way. They need to make those choices. They need to be dynamic. So it was but but what I was saying about why it comforted me is because it it pointed out to me that I still know Mahit. Yes. Yeah, she yeah. wasn't so horribly scarred by the events of that one day with the coup and, and all that, that she's an unrecognizable person now. Hmm. Good point. So. Good point. Yeah, okay. Thanks for clarifying. Um, you want to discuss uh, Three Seagrass? You want to move on? Do you have anything else about Mahit that you want to get out of the way? I, I think I'm, I've gone through everything about Mahit that I wanted to say. Sweet. So yeah, Three Seagrass. You know, I I was so glad that she only continued to shine throughout the second yeah. half. You know, she's still, uh, I, I don't, I don't, okay, I was, I was going to say naive, but no, I, I, I want to say innocent, but she's also yeah. sassy, you know. The mm-hmm. fact that the Emperor's Sixth Direction quoted her and then ended his own life must have hit so hard. I mean, think about where mm-hmm. she started, you know, over like over a period. This this entire book only took a uh, place, I think, over two weeks. Two weeks, because, yeah. Because, yeah, we got that, that little bit at the end there about how, you know, her Mahit's mail is now three months and two weeks two overdue, weeks. you know. But over – sorry, God, that beer is very fizzy. Over a period of only two weeks, they went uh, – she went from, like, this rather kind of unimportant, you know, just – I guess takes Kalan leads limb. She's still a citizen. But – Think about where she ends up. I mean, the, mm-hmm. she has the emperor quoting her on top of the fucking side of the temple when he sacrifices his own life and bleeds mm-hmm. out on fucking live feed. I was like, like, could, if you had taken Mahit now and explained it to her two weeks ago, could you imagine the fucking reaction you would get? Oh, yeah. I mean, th- th- she, she had so many great moments in this book. Like, and yet, as you had just mentioned, these little... Um, you know, Martine doesn't use curse words very often in her narrative, but when she does, they're really poignant. They they hit, they strike, mm-hmm. they mean something. I laughed so fucking hard so many times in this book at three seagrass just dropping the f bomb. You know, mm-hmm. there was that there was that moment when she when she stumbles across Mahit grappling for her life with the assassin wielding a poison tipped needle, and she just walks in the doorway and goes, "The fuck." Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, I laughed so fucking hard when I got to that point. It was so perfect. It, it, it sums up with two words everything. It sums up so much yeah. about what she's currently feeling at the moment. Uh, it was great. I love C3. Uh, C3 grass? Yeah. C3 grass. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I loved her too. Uh, you know, she's, she's probably my favorite character in the book. And I'm glad that my prediction from last week didn't come yes. true. I have that I'm written down that in my notes. My I'm heat. so glad that Drew was wrong about three C glass. Thank <laughs> God. Yeah, because you had me worried, dude. You made a good case. Uh, I mean, I was I was worried myself. I, I I liked her too much, and and you know, I've I've learned from reading a lot of books over the years that sometimes an author you know tries really really hard to get you to like somebody and mm. pulls the rug out from underneath you they're you know some some characters from uh, books we've even covered on the podcast like um warbreaker for instance yeah uh you know they're and and uh, anyway i'm glad that she did not betray my heat i'm glad that she wasn't involved you know and honestly i thought for sure when they went to the information ministry and my saying like we got to go talk to the emperor now and three, 
uh, three seagrass says, wait here, I'll be gone five minutes. And then she comes back with the guy uh, with six helicopter, putting them under arrest. And I was like, oh no, what did you do? Yeah. And then, but then <laughs> thankfully, very quickly it became clearer that she was innocent in that. And, and this was not her doing. But I, I thought in that moment when the guy walked in wearing the purple flower lapel. Yeah. I was like, no, what have you done? <laughs> like, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, I mean, her, she was uh, just a delight to read. Was, she's, a, she's a delightful person. What was her, uh, pedigree again? What was, um, there's, there's a Swazwakai, uh, text call on lead slim. I'm just thinking about, she was, um, a secretary. Oh, it's secretary. Yeah. yeah that's uh, the horse. Uh, a secretim. A uh, uh, secretim. I said, yeah, okay, thank you, a secretary. That's the fucking horse. Um, yeah, you know, I was so stoked, and I, and I have this moment written down here. Um, near, you know, of course, near the end, I have all caps. I wrote, yeah, go see three seagrass. I was so stoked when she she finally the moment came, and she finally just went for it, and she planted one right on Mahit. You know. Oh yeah. And yeah. I, I I do I did wish at the moment that it had happened in better circumstances, though. I mean, because it kind of makes me worry that it doesn't bode well for their relationship going forward. Because it wasn't, yeah, it. I don't know. It wasn't like a moment of a, triumph. It was kind of like a moment of fragility and desperation. Yeah, and, so. and there was a pretty non-committal um, departure with, with them at the end of the book, yeah. where where neither really knew what to do or how well, to handle what no, happened. And three seagrass specifically looks Mahit in the eyes. She says, "If you want me, like she, she's offered this this glorious position, but she goes, I am your uh, God liaison. Was that the word I was looking for? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am yours. You know, if you want me, I will turn this down. Like she she makes it very clear that she's still but, kind of but Mahit dedicated doesn't. to Mahit. Oh yeah, no, okay, good point. My good heat point. leaves and says, you know, "Like you go be second under secretary to the minister of information. You go do that. You pursue your vainglorious ambitions, and you know, and and then my heat meets nineteen ads and requests send me home, send me back to LaSalle Station. Yeah, and that that was like a that was a little bit of a blow, but yeah, it was kind of a bummer. It was a bummer. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Uh, and like, so on the topic of the romance here, I, I'll bring this up. I think it was tastefully done. It wasn't like over. Agreed. Agreed. Overly, you know. It wasn't gratuitous. It wasn't uh, yeah. forced. It didn't feel and, heavy-handed. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, especially um, with what's kind of become a trend in. Uh, science fiction and fantasy over the last couple of years where a, a lot of books um, there's almost this uh, feeling of like mandatory homosexual relationships in your book. Here and there. And, yeah. uh, I mean, we, 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 and just, we just left the I Acts read, of Cain, right? Where we had a lot yeah. of that in there as well. But that was Well, but that's, that's a totally, yeah, that's yeah. a totally different generation of fantasy. But I'm talking about like new books things yeah, that have come out this kind of like a in the last formula three, four years. it feels like that you have to hit with a certain amount of uh, representative lgbtq characters here yeah the there's there's a little bit of that and but because of that i think a lot of authors fall into a trap of like feeling the need to put it front and center yeah and and it and it becomes a little um it becomes a character trait in itself it becomes like uh, a um 
I don't know, a part of that character's identity when I really feel like it just, I don't know, in this book, uh, Martine made it feel organic, I guess is the way I want to describe it. Um, yes. So, it, it, so as I was yeah. saying, my, my point where I was going with that is like a lot of these authors make it very heavy handed and, and that can be like, like... I kind of roll my eyes a little bit at it. And, sure. and there have been books that I've picked up and started reading in recent years where I've, I haven't finished the book. Cause I was like, all right, you know, like this is a little like I got your point like a hundred pages ago. All right. But with this, <laughs> with a memory called empire, it was, it was j just very seamlessly again, like woven into the culture where it, mm -hmm. it makes sense that, that um, sexual relationships are, are so freely handled because for people like like on LaSalle station you know early they talk about you know the you know how crazy the idea of somebody actually carrying their own baby is because they, they don't they don't have the yeah. resources for it mm. you know they don't have uh you know it would be too much of a strain on their society and things like that and so because of that it makes sense that in this culture sex has become totally separated from the procreative aspect of it and it's become purely like a physical romantic kind of thing and and that it, it you know it's like you know whatever you know you like this person do it yeah and 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 i'm wondering you know because going back to that point about some of the other books i've read in recent years where it was a little heavy-handed um so arcady martin is a lesbian and you know she's married to another writer named really? vivian shaw um, yeah, oh, I had no idea. And, uh, and, and I have to wonder if like, it's because, you know, this, this is just like natural to her, right? Like it's, it's not something that as, maybe that's as why it felt so goddamn natural. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, sure. Like, like, yeah. It, it just, it just kind of flows in this book because it's not something that she feels the need to like focus on virtue she need signal to or, or, she yeah. or you know like check off a diversity checklist she's just like no this is the character i wanted to write and this is the character i know huh. and and i loved creating you know so it, it felt natural it felt um the word you said was organic it, it just it made sense in the world and it, and it wasn't like shoved in the reader's face and, and again like because this is a space opera right it's not a romance sure. the romance isn't like the focus of the story it was just like <laughs> a natural uh, progression of this relationship between these two characters that they they developed this intimacy yeah so i i appreciated that it was i thought it was a very tastefully done romance in this and and it didn't you know it didn't take over the story yeah she she wrote it in such a way that the important parts of the story had plenty of room to breathe and it just felt like oh yeah this character is is interested in guys and girls for like. sure. And I, and I think it's worth mentioning, of course, that this isn't the only romance that's in the book. We have mm -hmm. romance between a physical romance between Yaskander and 19 Ads. And as we find mm -hmm. out later, we have a physical romance between uh, Yaskander and the Emperor's Six Direction. Yes. You know, um, but as and, a, to, and a physical romance between 19 Ads and Six Direction. What, really? I didn't pick up on that one. Uh, yeah, that was, that was that? Uh, implied. At least that was oh. my impression that I got from it. Damn, because my point was like, damn, Yaskander's getting around. He's nineteen ads and the Emperor. Damn. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I kind yeah. of had the impression that like all of them in that little um, uh, inner group there. Yeah, were, they might just have like an old dallying around. Of dalliance. Yeah, that's a good way, a good way to put it. 
But, but yeah, no, I, I agree with what you said. I believe it was tastefully done. It felt, as I mentioned earlier, organic. It wasn't heavy-handed. It was subtle. Uh, it felt natural. And, you know, I think going forward, there's a lot to be taken, a lot to be learned with how she approached and, and how she, uh, you know, I guess executed the romance in this novel. It was, it was uh, well done. Mm-hmm. Well done. Yeah. Thumbs up from yeah. me. Yeah, I, I mean... Going back to what I talked to in the first episode about how she brought in, um, you know, connections to the current climate that we live in in 2019 in in you know on planet Earth, and the cultural yes. and political things that we're dealing with as people today, and 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 I think she continued to do that well in the second half of this book, mm. um, and that and that romantic side of things I think ties into it. Uh, you know, she she wrote a, a very culturally applicable book. I think a lot of people can read this and find connections, find things yeah. that they they like feel drawn to in in uh, various events that take place in it. Uh, I think this is a really good example of properly done speculative fiction that makes you sit back and think but doesn't shove it in your face. Like, for instance, Terry Goodkind does. Or, you know, <laughs> uh, where, where, you know, we don't, we don't have, like, uh. Mahi, you know, internally monologuing about how horrible this, like, exact replica of whatever system of government we know in the world, like, or we don't have her, like, yeah. basically taking out a copy Waxing of about it Karl Marx three and, and, a half and burning it. pages. Like, uh, and explaining <laughs> you know, it eighteen different fucking ways in case you were too stupid to understand yeah, it the first seventeen yeah. times. It was it was the kind of thing that like you can read this book and if you're this kind of a reader, you could just read it and get the story and be fine with it. But if you're the kind of reader who wants to dig into something a little more, if you've uh, you know maybe if you were, took like English classes and you learned how to approach books from that kind of a, a point of view, this is rich for that. Mm. This is a this is a, a text that you can really peel back the layers and get a lot out of and and get a lot to consider through the process. Yeah. I'm so glad I got the physical. Well, no, not the physical, the electronic on my e-reader because it's being able to actually sit down and read text is going to I think add a lot more depth to this book uh when mm-hmm. I approach it again in the future because I will be rereading this. I'm I'm sure I will be before the the sequels are released. Um, yeah. So I guess we're still loosely at the end of Three Seagrass. Is there anything you want to get out of the way about her before we move on to something no, else? No, I'm I'm pretty much done with her, and I honestly don't have a whole lot to say about other characters other than um, uh, Six Helicopter is a douche, and I really hope <laughs> that he died when that shock baton hit him in the face. <coughs> See, I, I ha- yeah, no, definitely. Uh, ditto on that one. Um, I just have like just small miscellaneous thoughts about Six Direction 19 ads. I do have a little more to say about 12 Azalea, though. Just a couple points sure. of uh, that I want to bring to the forefront here. Um, did he read to you a little bit like the Larimar from Sanderson's Warbreaker? The Larimar? The Larimar. And here's, here's my justification mm. for that. He's this... this this uh, kind of elderly character, almost like a father figure. He's mostly along just for the ride. He's huffing and puffing, this kind of suffering type of humor, pulled along by the machinations or the shenanigans of those younger, more naive. But he's still along because he uh. wants to protect them, you know, putting himself... For, I, he, to me, he read 
like kind of like Larimar. Not to you to so me, much. He read more like Light Song. Whoa, whoa, Light Song. Uh, where he was enamored of the idea of intrigue and throwing himself into it, perhaps a bit ineptly. And and I definitely didn't get the like father figure kind of thing because he is this like he's the same age as three. Oh, is he this really? I didn't. Yeah, get they were that. in school together. Oh, maybe it was. Oh, yeah, they were, weren't they? Why did I get the impression that he was like fifteen years older than she was? Oh no, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, uh, but, but you know, but, he, he just had yeah. this air of being. To me, he had this air of just kind of being pulled along with their kind of. To an extent, but he was willing. I mean, he he volunteered for a lot well, of things. There was this this quote, and I have this right now. My next point here in chapter seventeen, a quote from uh, Twelve Azalea that I really appreciated. It's uh, when when Mahit, Three Seagrass, and Twelve Azalea are arrested, and they hear a commotion outside of the room. And Mahit goes, all right, you know, fuck it. Anything is better than waiting. Let's go see. You know, and then it goes, we're arrested, 12 Azalea mentioned. But fuck it. Let's unarrest yeah. ourselves. And yeah. Went, okay, yeah, he's starting to really, you know, I don't know, uh, um, breathe a little more as well. But yeah, no, my, my <laughs> only real comment on 12 Azalea is rest in peace, buddy. Yeah, I was so bummed that he died. I mean, it was great that he got the chance to die, you know, bravely fighting for what he believed mm-hmm. in. But like Three Seagrass, he started to, to me, he felt a little more human through the second half. Like, we got so much more info about him. We got a more yeah. personal look at his life. We, we were like in his apartment for one scene. You know, he, he was mm-hmm. talking about his salary. We, we even learned about these intramural sports that he played. Yeah. And, and after all of that, it just kind of, to me, it just kind of sucks that he died off screen. Yeah. You know, I was just, I don't know. I wanted a little more, you know, for that guy. A little bummed. A little bummed. So, I I think that's a good jumping off point. We should move into maybe some predictions for the second book. Sure. Uh, and, I and didn't actually write any down. Here but is I that, can just throw some, yeah. Is that we know that, um, uh, what was what was her name? Five Portico? Oh, the, the uh, surgeon? Uh, neurosurgeon? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, she is working on uh, uh an imago and and right? i i just like i kind of have this this like feeling that she's gonna show up again and be a major player and perhaps have some way of bringing 12 azalea in part back into the picture because she's 12 azalea was the connection to her oh and she's a neurosurgeon and maybe this is me being really, but really wouldn't twelve Azalea already to... need to have had an Imago machine? In, well, in when so he died? possibly, yeah. Uh, well, in the traditional sense of how the Lasell Imago lines work, but I think you know she's been working on this kind of stuff for a while and may have. No, like... She's been working on it just for a couple of days at this point. By the time he dies, well, no, but she's she's a neurosurgeon. Yeah, she's a neurosurgeon. Okay, but. Yeah, and and she like you know they talk about how she's got like all this crazy stuff and like, uh, like schematics and things in her in her workshop and and Mahit says like she didn't mess with me she didn't look at the note taped to my ribs I'm not gonna look through her stuff. I'm gonna respect her privacy because she respected fair, mine. Fair, fair. Uh, so and like I said, maybe this is me being really hopeful and well, wanting it's a prediction. Twelve Azalea to right? come back just, in yeah. some some manner. Um. But yeah, I, uh, I, I, I mean, I really liked Twelve Azalea. So yeah, I liked him too. He was he was, he was very uh, 
I don't know. It was enjoyable every time he opened his mouth. I, I was like, I, I got a little bit of entertainment out of him all the way through, from the mm-hmm. beginning to the very end. Um, I, but uh, what was I just about to say here? Um, I can see yeah, on, on the uh, as far as predictions go, I just you know obviously think that uh, the, the 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 bigger overall threat is clearly I think going to be this alien race that's kind of waiting in the wings. And that they're, yeah. they're, you know, I think that, um, what was her, uh, Five Portico was, was yeah. her name? I think she's going to be a little more central in the narrative going forward because of, of, of her expertise. I'm not sure if she's going to, uh, I don't know, I don't know how effective she's going to be, but I think she's going to have an entirely, maybe an entirely different breakthrough, something completely different. Still has to do with, 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 mm. with, you know, uh, her yeah, talents, the... with, with, with her uh, abilities, but I don't, I don't think. I don't know. I think she she may be able to to you know kind of reproduce a few imigos or something very similar. But as far as going as far as to to res, resurrect I mean, somebody, something who's already dead. Something has one. to happen with that. Like that. Oh, the, the fact, fact that, that Mahit the gave machine. her the the imigo machine. Yeah, that's like, that going to come Chekhov's back and gun. bite Mahit in the ass and perhaps all of Lestelle yeah. Station in the ass. I I actually do agree with that. Absolutely. But I think she's yeah. going to be like the like the mad scientist, perhaps that, that that has an entirely different breakthrough that might help them against these this mysterious faceless the alien aliens. race, or could go very very wrong and lead to a whole bunch of problems of its own sort. Mm-hmm. I see her being central to something like that going forward. Six directions dead. Um, <clears throat> I don't know his his six. You know we have nineteen ads temporarily. You know as empress, I suppose, or empress. You know until uh, uh, 8 Antidote, I think, is next in line. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Uh, what, what about One Lightning? Where do you see that going? Because he, all, you know, all things considered, turned out to not really be too I'm, important. I'm really interested to see where that's going to go, because he, I mean, like, he was such a major player in the book, but was never on screen. Yeah, like, well, he, he was, was literally he was on screen screen for a few seconds, but he yeah. wasn't, like... Yeah. Like, yeah. he was never in the same room with any of our characters. Like, he, he had, like, what, two lines of dialogue in the whole book. He was this, yeah. you know, threat looming in the wings. This impersonal kind of player in the game. And I, I, I have to imagine he'll become a more central figure, like, immediately as a character, where he'll be there in person. Okay. Uh, in, in the second book, but... The, it was it was just really weird to me, and and it's something that I appreciated because a lot of the time, it's tough to to have an antagonist who's at a remove in a book. Yeah, it's hard to make it work, sure. and I think she she made it work in this one. Well, it's, I, I would say it's I would go a step farther and say it's hard to make it work and feel natural. I mean, part of my mistake being with um, a villain that, for example, I had written way, way, many, many years ago. They were kind of similar. They were just, like, never had any screen time. And going back, I can look at it and see, that just feels, like, synthetic. It feels fabricated. It feels stupid and, 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 and non-personal. I, I think it's a point in Martine's favor that she managed to make one direct... Ah, uh, One Direction. Jesus Christ. One Lightning. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wow. Um, one Lightning kind of so removed... 
but still feel like a person. Like, he's going to be important later. He, I, I do, as, as far as him going forward, I do still get this kind of sense that he's going to be an antagonist. He's not going to be, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who we really appreciate going forward. He's going to be somebody who really grinds a lot of our gears, perhaps, and, and presents a major problem for our protagonists, I think. Yeah, and, and so talking about like our own writing here, you've read All Flames Cast. I have. Uh, the I last, have. I've the, had the most the recent book I wrote. Pleasure, and yeah. I see Pradius in that as a similar kind of in the wings uh, antagonist. Yes, he's the one. And then we're gonna we could we could censor this or bleep yeah. Well, this. Yeah, we we don't need to talk. Oh, about him, okay, he's, okay. He's the okay. guy. Yeah, you know who. Yeah, he is. I know who he is. Um, but yeah, so that's that's why I said I appreciate what Martine did with One Lightning in this because. The last book I wrote, I tried to do a similar thing with that. So, it and and I think, I mean, I haven't had any you know beta readers or gamma readers tell me that they didn't like how that worked. So, didn't tell me, oh, you need to make him more present in sure, the story. Sure. So I think I pulled it off. But <laughs> yeah, no, I think you pulled it off better um, than 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 I did when I was writing when I was fucking sixteen. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so do we want to go into like uh, maybe some like three favorite scenes? Shit, I didn't write any down. I mean, I could definitely just throw scenes forward that I love so much. Definitely. I mean, I mean, I can I can do my three like right off the bat. Here. Yeah, go for it. Because there there are three. I mean, like this wasn't even a question for me. The my three scenes are that uh, scene in the morgue where um, well, Maki and Yaskander yeah. dissociate. Yep. Uh, the surgery and. The suicidal sacrifice. Yeah, those. I like, mean, like you, you probably nailed the the, the heaviest three. I mean, those, those yeah, are like, probably the exact else? three th- scenes that I would have picked. The tension that we got when we don't know if Mahit's going to try and hide the fact that she also has an imago as she's you know observing mm-hmm. Yaskandra's body and she's just starting to kind of get to know three seagrass and twelve azalea and they run into nineteen ads for the first time. The tension in that scene was was phenomenal. Like, that definitely oh, yeah. was on my favorite. That definitely was listed as my favorite scene for the first half, and I I, I still oh, yeah. I still definitely agree with that. Um, and as mm-hmm. far as the other two ones you mentioned, I mean uh, the the chapter sixteen, so much happening in there. You know, Mahit waking up for all intents and purposes as Yaskander, how surreal and chilling that was. That was fucking pulled. That was phenomenal. And then the most metal fucking death of all time. Mr. Six Direction, my man, the Emperor, just fucking bleeding out <laughs> on top of the temple. Drew, you at one point you gave me a list of like the most metal deaths in all of fantasy, didn't you? Oh no, it was it was the most metal deaths in uh, Middle Earth. Oh, in Middle Earth. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it was in, like yeah, in yeah, all yeah. of fantasy because I would be like, this would have to be. No. You know that that list needs updating or, if that's the case because this. It was... may even have just been the most metal deaths <laughs> in the Silmarillion. Uh, but but yeah, it yeah. was, yeah, it was fucking awesome. I don't yeah, this that was it was such a hard hitting moment. It was so badass. It kind of felt like just I don't know. It's like this whole other. It felt like it was written almost by somebody else because it was just so heavy and hard. But I mean, it was. I think it still fits with the rest of this book. Oh, I yeah. really appreciated what Martin did with that. And it was so. I mean, going into it, that was the last fucking thing I expected. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, oh, I was I was taken aback by it too. But it, <laughs> but by the time it happened, it felt inevitable. Yeah. You know, 
And that's a sign of really good writing, where it's surprising but inevitable. And you still have that that two minutes beforehand where you're starting to realize what's happening, and you're going, oh, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no! And then it happens anyway. Oh, it was great. Yeah, yeah. metaphorically speaking, you're like, what's that smudge on the horizon? Oh, is that... It's, is that a train? It's, oh, no, it is. Oh, no, and the track's broken. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Released. I am a spear in the hands of the sun. And it's yep. slash. Oh, good. Good writing. Man. Well, on, on that note, uh, shall we move into the final game? Yeah, draft? yeah, sure. I mean, I can start because I have the... I, I have a somewhat thematically appropriate beer. I was at the uh, okay. the grocery store yesterday. Believe it or not, it was almost fucking impossible to find a thematically appropriate beer. I had time. I was there. I was thinking, you know, this this book focuses a lot on poetry. It focuses a lot. There's a lot of names that involve flowers, inanimate mm-hmm. objects. I figured this is going to be easy to find a beer for. But holy shit, if it wasn't goddamn impossible. There was like nine minutes left until the store closed. I'm sitting there looking back and forth. I couldn't find anything. <laughs> I finally found one that's, you know, somewhat involved. Um, based, of course, on Ar- on Arcadie Martins, you know, um, her proclivities towards uh, poetry and verse, mm-hmm. I have a beer here with me. It is a Citra Pale Ale. I, I assume they're sure. going for citrus. Yeah. I don't know. Well, it- so it's it's the name of a type of hops, Citra Hops. Oh, okay. There you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned something new today. This was brewed in Hamilton, Ontario from Collective Arts Brewing. Uh, brewing, Jesus. Brewing. This is called <laughs> Rhyme and Reason. Oh, I like it. I like yeah. it. Yeah. And you know what? It was fucking delicious. I was expecting to hate this beer. It's 5.7%, so it's you know a little stronger than, slightly stronger than your average beer. Um, it was very, very yellow, very, very bright. Uh-huh. Um, fucking delicious, though. I mean, it was so, so, uh, so citrusy. Like, I mean, it's an IPA. Yep. You're going to get those bitter tones throughout there. But it was so much so, it almost felt like, um like a shock top it was very very citrusy <laughs> so i mean you know i would nice. can absolutely recommend this one i'm probably gonna go forth because it was also pretty cheap and i mean it's got this very very cheap can that's just got this little wraparound kind of you know label on it and mm-hmm. as you can see the the logo is just this giant yellow background with a green lizard on it <laughs> with the artist's name on the back of the can from new york new york usa so yeah rhyme and nice. reason from hamilton ontario that's what I've been drinking. I like it. I, I do think that's appropriate. That you know, that's something that would come out of one of those oh, uh, like you. poetry reading competitions <laughs> from uh, you know in the Tixkalonly court. A poetry slam. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, well, and so it's funny uh, for my beer. I also had a pretty hard time. Like I spent a solid like 15, 20 minutes perusing the shelves. Like, beers with like the names of flowers in them and, and stuff like yeah. that. You would think, but there like, really isn't. I was looking for like any kind of like flowers, poetry, sun, spear. Like I really oh, wanted sun. to get like a spear one. Like oh, oh there was a spear one, but I did. So... I thought it was like nah, it's not close enough. But but I ended up getting something a little more abstract, but that I thought was a. Uh, very appropriate for the second half especially of this book and this is a sure sure so it's it's an india pale ale fermented in oak with britannomyces which is you know like a a yeast culture like uh provides like a lot of funky flavor you're gonna get a lot of britannomyces in like belgian saisons farmhouse ales things like that um it's uh and and this beer is very funky so it's an eight percent 
oak-aged IPA from Anchorage Ooh. Brewing Company in Alaska. And it is called uh, The Ghosts Anchorage, in Their Eyes. The Ghosts in Their Eyes. Oh, that yeah. is more abstract, but I can see what you're going for there. It's It, it was especially the scene with um, uh, Mahit meeting 19 ads again with both Yaskanders in her. And, and when she lets the older Yaskander oh, yeah. take over. Take over her like facial expressions, and she says, it's so yeah. weird the way that you smile like he, and the way that the... Oh, yeah. I love that. And, and that was, uh, you know, and, and like I'll show you the label here. It, it's, it's this kind of like Whoa. intense, you know... Uh, it looks like a, like a screenshot from a horror movie, right? When some woman's being drowned. And, and in the pupil there, you know, there's a little skull. Ah, that's kind of cool. But uh, but yeah, I I liked that one. I I liked it. It was a little more abstract, and it was in fitting because the last episode I also had a beer connected to yeah. her, you know, imago situation, the the single <laughs> by choice, you know, um, because she was she was single, she was alone by the choice, not hers, but of Omnard um, uh, bots. Yeah. So. Sweet. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and to talk about this beer a little bit though, so it I mean it is hoppy. Yeah, it's a it's a it's an IPA. It's As pretty tasty. Expect. I'm not a huge fan of um, Britannomyces myself. Uh, there there's some beers, you know, depending on on how you know the the style comes out. Um, <clears throat> some like wild ales, farmhouse ales that I enjoy. Um, this one is a little it's a little estery. It's a little uh, soapy to me. Mm. Um, like I'm sure, and this is something that is like a personal thing for me apparently it's like a genetic deal where like some people think cilantro tastes oh like yeah soap. i've heard about that yeah to me to me some of these like uh like britannomyces um can taste like soap sometimes so i was hoping this wouldn't be one of them i mean it's still not bad like i'm drinking the bottle but uh you know it's a it's a quality IPA. It looks like it's the exact same color as the beer that I just drank. I'm drinking out of a Wonder Woman cup, of course, a courtesy of my little sister, Sierra. Shout out to (laughs) Cease. What's up, Cease? (laughs) But, yeah. So, Um, sweet. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, overall, though, I think I just want to say that I'm really glad we did this book. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that that we ended up agreeing on this one. Yeah. I was, was, I was a little was ambivalent a in the departure. first half. I had a couple complaints. You know, I was like, eh, it's a little slow. It's a little metaphor me. There's too much poetry, too much syntax, too much, you know, grammar and rules, and there's not enough action. But, you know, I, I in the second half, I did see that there was a whole lot that I was missing. And, you know, the pacing did pick up, but that wasn't the only thing that made it better. I mean, I started to get a greater appreciation for the, and again, I'll, I'll say this word, even though it has some negative connotations, I'm not meaning it this way, this flowery language. I mean that in mm-hmm. a compliment at this point. She has this delivery that's really something. And I, without a doubt, definitely want to cover uh, this the sequels in this series whenever oh, yeah. they are you know released. I'm looking forward to those. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Sweet. You know, the, it, it, this is a very different kind of book than those we've been covering. There's um, so much to glean out of here, so much to dig into, not just from the plot, but from the actual prose itself. It's just, oh, mm-hmm. it is a work of art and, and in even, itself. It was even just like the the subject matter. This is our first like space opera. You know, we've done a lot of yeah, fantasy yeah. books, and even even the science fiction books that we've done. Uh, 
have fantastic elements. I mean, you know, A Wrinkle in Time or, you know, Kane, which is like like a 50-50 sci-fi fantasy blend where you go from Earth with, like, future tech to overworld yeah. with magic and swords and stuff. And, and so this is the first, like, really pure, grand-scale space opera. Um, you know, Skyward is, is a pretty contained book by Brandon Sanderson. Mm -hmm. We... we uh, um, I will say, I think you know, I enjoyed one a, this one a more ago, than Skyward. I think I did. You know, I, I'm with you. Yeah. Like, the writing was just so good in this book. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it Skyward was, so was a good. YA, it was shorter, you know, it was written for a younger audience. But there's just so much to get out of this book that, of course, I don't know why I'm even yeah. comparing them because they're totally different genres. It was, it, yeah, I shouldn't have compared yeah. them in the first place. Forget that I just said that. But it's, it's like it's they're, they're both just, science yeah. fiction and that's about they're it. They're both, yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. But, uh,. But yeah, on that note, I mean, I think this is a wrap for A Memory Called Empire, yeah? Sweet. Thank you very much, Arcady Martin. It was an awesome, yeah. awesome read. No kidding. So so this has been episode 21 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, next week, speaking of young adult books, yes. we are going to be going back to Brandon Sanderson, and we're going to be kicking off a uh, reread of the Reckoners trilogy. Uh, <laughs> so next week we'll be covering all of Steelheart, the first book Steelheart yes and uh, and if you want early access to that episode go check out our Patreon uh, uh, we have a, several very excellent tiers on there and one of them gives you early access to episodes yep um, uh, otherwise we also you know have tiers that give you access to some of our short story uh, Patreon exclusive episodes uh, in that will in the future include Brandon Sanderson short fiction. So uh, keep an eye out for that. How can we not? Um, yeah. Yeah. So as usual, I am your host, Drew McCaffrey and my co-host Rob Santos. What's up? And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank Catch you. Catch you next time. See ya.